Hey, what is up, guys? Today's episode is brought to you by the incredible sponsors of the program, ChemicalFreeBody.com. If health and wellness is a priority for you, then check out the incredible products over at Chemical Free Body. Plant-based nutritional supplements from Super Greens, my favorite, with all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients, and micronutrients in just one single scoop. Toss it in your glass of water, your shake, your smoothie, however you want to do it. They also have other incredible products, gut detoxers, anti-inflammatories, immune boosters, and so much more. Chemicalfreebody.com and check out that promo code, it's me, all one word, it's me for discounts at your checkout. And look, we have so many different insurance policies in our life. And if the last couple years has taught you anything, it taught me that storable food needs to be on that list. Prepare with itsme.com, the incredible products over at My Patriot Supply. They have four weeks supply of food, three months supply, all products with up to a 25 year shelf life. Have the peace of mind, ladies and gentlemen, of having storable food and have that supply on deck. It's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. And uh, if you have, you know, shaving needs like nice chrome domes like me, SkullShaver.com is a whole new concept in face and head shaving. The products offered over there include men's head shavers, face shavers, hair clippers, and trimmers. And ladies, we haven't forgot about you with the butterfly kiss. And we also have a large selection of accessories to make your life that much more simple. All of the shavers come with uh, removable, washable blades made of premium Japanese stainless steel to ensure flawless results. It just makes it so much easier. You can get your shaving done anytime, anywhere, in or out of the shower. It gets no better. Skullshaver.com, front slash discount, front slash it's me. All of the links to these incredible products will be in the description of this episode. So without further delay, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the show. Everything, everything. Everything gonna be all right this morning. Then here we go. We are off once again, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. Another episode for the Archives. It's me speaking to you in this year of our Lord, 2023. And today, man, I've been a big fan of this guy, and he stays busy, man. His grind is just constant. And he's been really, really busy uh, pumping out some movies, amongst other things. Uh, he's been on the show before. I've had you know the, the pleasure of chopping up with him about uh, his early writing career, and we'll get into it a little bit. But Seth Ferranti is joining us today. What's up, Seth? Hey, what's up, man? How you doing? Glad I, to be back on the show. Yeah, man, it's good to have you back. Like I was saying, it's been following you forever, man, going back back in the day, but you just have been staying busy. Before we get into the flicks that you've been uh, into, what have you been up to, brother? I know you, st- you stay busy. What you been on? Man, I've just been, you know, I, I've been working, um, traveling a lot, uh, doing events, um, basically just trying trying to get myself out there. You know, I, I, I got a lot of ideas. I got I got a lot of projects. And, you know, if you don't get out there and kind of, kind of beat the drum, people aren't really going to know what you're doing. You know, it's not like I got people coming and looking for me. But when I go out there and I let people know what I'm doing, it seems like a lot of people are interested. Well, it's definitely hugely crucial to like get your, get the word out there, like you said, because otherwise, you know, you got a hundred dollar bills on sale for a nickel, but nobody knows it. Because I mean, you were dropping some gems, but you've obviously taken advantage of a lot of podcast platforms, and uh, you know, it's basically kind of free advertising to help get your word out there and a lot of the projects you've been you've been uh, you've been having your fingers in, bro. Yeah, because I'm you know I'm I'm independent. You know, I don't have like a Netflix budget. I don't have <laughs> even like with my books. I don't have like they got these big marketing budgets and. So, you know, that's basically, I, I get the word out on social media and, and podcasts, you know, it's really grassroots, it's really word of mouth, but it, it seems to be working to a, to a certain extent. I mean, would I love to have like a $1.5 million marketing budget for my stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, but, you know, 
Yeah, but you know, in the, in the United States, it's it kind of show and prove. So as my stuff keeps selling and as people get more interested, um, you know, then maybe one day I, I will have that for one of my projects. So that, you know, that's the goal because it's all about the eyeballs. It's all about, you know, getting people to know what's up because not everybody's going to like what I do, but no, without I think, a doubt. you know, yeah, I think, you know, if enough people see it, you know, a lot, of, you know, a lot of people are going to like what I do. Well, and that's what I've always admired about your hustle as well. You're not waiting for it to become perfect for you to like do these things and get the word out there. That's why it's so cool, man. You've managed to thrive and flourish in spite of the fact that you don't necessarily have that budget because you're leveraging, like you said, a lot of these relationships, a lot of these online platforms, which again, kind of translates to really free advertising. So being savvy enough to make that work for you is really dope in spite of, like I said, not having the, the, the normal budget. But you know, you had movies on Netflix, you had things out there. So the, the word is definitely spreading on what you're up to, bro. No, I think it's all culminative. And you know, I, I really began um, this type of model like I do in prison. Because I, I started writing for for different you know print magazines and, and online uh, magazines like while I was in prison and, and a lot of times they would offer to pay me and I would tell them I say look I don't want you to pay me I just want you to you know pump my book and like yes. my first book was prison stories my my second books was street legends volume one so that's kind of how I really put myself on the map but I would write articles for these publications be it print or um, online. And I and I would tell them I say don't pay me any money. Publicize and, and promote my book on your website, and, and that's really how you know I learned from prison to do it like that, and I, I've continued that to this day. You know, it's just different platforms. You know, podcasts like yourself. Yeah. You know, uh, social media. You know, and then networking. You know, I got a lot of friends that have way bigger followings and, and, and higher statures and are more recognizable than me. And when I get out new projects, I ask them, I'm like, Hey man, show my stuff, you know, plug me, you know, promote me, you know, because they, they have these big massive forums, you know, yes. they have like a hundred thousand, hundred thousand K followers or, or even more. So, you know, it, it, it's worked out, but like extremely, you know, independent, extremely DIY, extremely grassroots word of mouth. That's how, that's how I built everything. Well, and I've noticed, too, when it when it becomes that, you, you know, you're in charge of everything. You control the intellectual property. No one's telling you what you can and cannot say. And I think that's hugely important. And like you said, it's very, it's very smart to kind of, no, you don't got to pay me. I'll take it. You know, I want to leverage this relationship. And eventually you get the you get the bag on the back end because, like you said, you're utilizing these platforms to get your word out there. And, you know, initially, of course, you're not taking any dough, but I think it definitely pays off in the end. And you mentioned something that you've mentioned before when you're on the show, but I don't necessarily want to overlook it. Because you did, you know, you got sat down for a minute. Tell us a little bit how that went down. We don't want to spend too much time because we've talked about it before, and it's really, I'm sure you've told the story many, many times. Talk a little bit about how you got um, got in trouble a little bit and how long that whole process took. Yeah, so I got I got involved with drugs at a really early age, about 13. I started smoking weed. I started doing LSD, you know, mushrooms, psychedelics. I've always been a cannabis psychedelic dude. I've always felt that, you know, cannabis and psychedelics were, you know, medicinal, therapeutical, yeah. you know, and, and spiritual. You know, I, once I kind of expanded my mind with these substances, you know, it, it just it made me look at stuff different. And. You know, I, I, I was kind of mad, you know, because I was an 80s kid, you know, like the Just Say No era and all that, <laughs> you know, the war on drugs. And it pissed me off that, you know, they were equating cannabis or psychedelics to heroin. You know, it was like it was like this is not like heroin. So, you know, right from the jump from an early age, like 13, 14, 15, I was like the government is lying to us. Yes. You know, and that's how I felt. And to kind of combat that, you know, in, in my own uh 
you know, I don't want to say immature, but in my own kind of teenage rebellion, you know, I started, I started slinging those, those substances, you know, in high school and, and then in colleges. And um, I built a little organization where I was supplying 15 colleges in, in five states, you know, by 1990, when, when I was basically like 19 years old. And, you know, in retrospect, you know, maybe it was kind of stupid because, you know, I didn't think so at the time, but, you know, it, this was at the height of the war on drugs, like when the war on drugs just started. So, you know, and I'm forming this, you know, drug organization with these schedule one drugs, you know, so, you know, I, I was a little naive in, in, in some regards, but, you know, I always tell people I, I never consider myself criminal. I consider myself an outlaw because I broke laws that I thought were wrong. And, you know, eventually 1991, you know, I got busted. Um, I had a little bit of money, so, you know, they, they were telling me, like, you know, whatever, 20 to life, and I was like, man, 20 to life, and I was like, I'm not doing 20 to life, so, you know, I took off, I became a fugitive, I, I faked my suicide, for some ungodly reason, they made me a top 15 U.S. Marshals list as a first-time nonviolent offender, I think that's because I made them look bad, you know, I, I put a black mark, you know, they yeah. thought, like, I would cooperate or I would bring them other drug dealers. Or I was this kid from the suburbs and I was going to make cases for them. And uh, none of that happened, you know, and I just took off. And um, so when I got caught, when I got caught, you know, they, they basically uh, slammed me and, and gave me a 25 year sentence where I got caught in 1993 at the age of 22. Well, and that's so crazy too. Like you said, first time nonviolent offender and they threw the book at you, man. That's, that's crazy. That's crazy. Like you said, you had to go no, on the no. lamb and all that. I mean, that's that's a wild that's a wild story in and of itself, brother. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I was a fugitive for two years, and really, I I, I probably had about twenty k when I fled, so um, that didn't last long. About maybe about six months. So I jumped right back in, in, into the weed game and 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 started moving weed, and I had a new route. You know, before I was getting stuff from uh you know the emerald triangle of northern california or kentucky or even florida or texas and bring it up to the east coast but this time i started getting stuff out of texas and, and bringing it up to st louis and that's how my whole st louis connection started you know that's where i got popped i got popped here but i, I built basically like my little second little drug organization and um yeah and then then i got popped they extradited me back to virginia and uh you know, it was all over the news. You know, they caught public enemy number one, top 15 U.S. Marshals. Come on now. Fugitive. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I was kind of astounded because I was like 22. You know, I was like, you know, barely wet behind the ears. Right, you know, like, right, right. Like a college kid, yeah. And well, and it's, it, it's, it was it's, crazy. Well, and as you know, you know, you get, you, you know, you win the, uh, you win the prize of, you know, most dangerous, whatever. It, you know, and you know the role, the, it, the, the absurdity of it is they call you that, first-time nonviolent offender. And while the government's playing its role in this whole black market, you know, drug trade, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's super, super absurd. But I'm going to ask you a dumb question. I think I've even asked you this before. And I, I think it's I think I understand. I know the answer. But those two years you're on the lamb. How hard? I mean, is it is it day to day just constantly watching your six? Or did you have a notion at any point in time? I can let my guard down a little bit. I'm good. I'm good. I mean, I usually I know that's usually when people slip up and get caught. But was it a constant, constant stressful situation? Two years constantly watching your back. No, I'd say the first, you know, the first couple months was, was kind of like cloak and dagger. I was a little paranoid. Then, um, you know, after about six months, you know, you kind of get used to it. And you got to think this time, like I, I'm not me this time. I have like fake ID, yeah, multiple yeah. fake IDs. So like I'm I'm constantly someone else. So 
you know, it's just you, you become like every time I'll go out, I would say, okay, I'm a Christopher J. Lynette, you know, social security number, such and such, such and such, date of birth, such and such, address this. And I would put it into my head almost like I was a spy or something, you know, it was, yeah. was kind of weird, you know, like Mission Impossible and stuff like that. But um, yeah, after about six months, you know, I kind of got my mojo back, you know, because when you're, when you're, when you're 20 years old and like your whole world comes crashing down like that, you know, it's, it's a lot to handle. It's a lot to deal with, you know, because everything that I thought was right, you know, they, they came down and they're like, oh, you're wrong. You're a drug addict. You're this or that. And, um, you know, so after about six months, so, you know, I, I kind of rebounded. But it, it was like a transitionary period where six months where I was kind of like looking all over all my shoulder. I thought like the feds, you know, were around every corner. They were going to find me because, you know, basically all, all, all my friends, you know, um, snitched on me and they knew everything about me so you know when 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 people get that deep into your business like the federal government and they do what they did you know it, it kind of takes you to your core so it did it, it take six months but after six months i i got my mojo back and you know i start i start slinging weed again and i was like fuck the feds i'm gonna do what i want come <laughs> you know catch me if you can yeah man that's that's one of my favorite movies frank abagnale but that's like you said you know almost like a spy you have to believe your role your undercover role like donnie brosco kind of stuff you have to like you have to believe it to make that shit real because otherwise you know that's that's how you can possibly slip up but yeah man like i said you you lived several lifetimes man and it's actually cool because i kind of mentioned some stuff to you i think when alpo martinez came out and something happened to him i just mentioned something to you about him getting out and you were like yeah i'm not really in that world that much anymore so it's cool as much as you know you were kind of involved in that stuff you began once you got out especially you began to evolve into this you know filmmaker you're already an author but you, you began to evolve a bit out of out of the kind of the you know the low low vibe type stuff into what you're doing now yeah no definitely you know i think you know, in prison, I, I was writing for my peers, you know, and, and most of my peers were African-American. I mean, you know, let, let's face it. The laws were racist. When I got locked up, it was 75 percent black, yeah. you know, from the crack era. So, you know, I was writing for my peers. That was my audience in federal prison. That's what they wanted to read. They wanted to read that gangster stuff. So that's right. what I wrote about. I, and I liked it, too. And I was locked up with those dudes. I was like amazed. Well, and we you know, all I was like. We all love that shit. I mean, I've, you know, that's why Godfather one and two, which I think is one movie, is one one of the dopest movies ever. Because we're all, you know, the true crime shit. We all love that gangster shit. Like I, you know, you and I, I go a little bit deeper into it. Like you're talking about the Kenneth Supreme McGriff, your Wayne Perry's, your your um your uh what's the man's name um in D.C. Edmund um uh, yeah Rayful Edmund Ray, Rayful yeah. So I, mean, I just there's so many of these interesting stories all throughout the country of the, how deep these guys got and i know you know who frank matthews is like we don't even know what happened to that guy he's everybody thinks you know lucas and all those guys were the man but you know anyway matthews was I don't know, frank matthews yeah frank matthews yeah he, he was, was on a whole nother level the bigger, real, yeah bigger nicky barnes yeah bro yeah bro and then yeah i think i think he was a part of some you know kind of cia shit that's why they tipped him off to the indictment and all this stuff and he wound up disappearing but yeah, I thought that was cool that you wound up kind of evolving into kind of what you're doing now with the filmmaking, dude. You've, you've literally cranked out. I mean, I don't know which one you want to get into first. Chronologically, I think White Boy was first about White Boy Rick Rushy. And then you got the Dopeman one that just dropped and then Nightlife. Well, let's get into those a little bit, man. Whichever one you want to jump on first. Yeah, so so White Boy was kind of my, my introduction um, to, to the documentary game. I, I mean, I've written a bunch of books in prison. Um, I have eight published in prison. You know, I probably wrote like 25. I think I got 25. So I, I've been putting them out slowly but surely since since I've been out. And, um, you know, but I, I wrote the majority of them in prison. But, you know, when I, when I got out, you know, as a writer, I saw the highest level of writing is, is writing for film. So, 
you know, that's what I wanted to do. So I came out, you know, with that vision. And, um, you know, I thought like a lot of people, you know, you start doing something. I thought like, oh, two years, I'm going to be in position. I mean, it took way longer. I mean, I'm like eight years. I still feel like yeah, I'm yeah, in the position yeah. eight, eight years later. But, you know, um, at least I do have these first two out for my own studio, Outlaw Films. But, you know, White Boy was a learning process for me. I, I, I had a, a, a remarkable mentor, Sean Reck from Transition Studios. You know, I brought him that story. It was based on a, a series of articles I wrote about Rick's case that I wrote, you know, when I was in prison on the fix and you know vice and some of these other websites and he kind of he took me under his wings and, and you know i knew how to write i knew how to tell a story but i didn't know how to make a document you know, i didn't know how to film stuff yeah you know i didn't know how to edit you know i didn't know how to manage this uh, collaborative effort which film is and i did, definitely didn't know anything about the business side and he taught me you know under the process of white boy he taught me everything and still to this day he teaches me all the time and now white boys have like this five-year journey like you know five years we released that in 2018 and you know we just signed another netflix deal earlier this year and it's on netflix again so um you know this this film just continues to have this amazing staying power and i'm like grateful you know that sean took me under his wing and and mentored me but uh, but i'm also grateful to uh be a part of this you know successful film that like five years later you know a lot of documentaries they don't have that type of shelf life and this film just has this amazing shelf life and from my involvement in that, you know, I, I, I kind of catapulted off that or, or use that as a platform to start doing my own stuff with Outlaw Films. The first of two, you know, which just came out on, on Amazon a couple of weeks ago, which uh, Dope Men, man, Dope Men, America's first drug cartel. Um, it's, it's like it's popping on Amazon right now. It's, it's like crazy. Like it's only been out like two weeks and there's like 26 five-star reviews so uh well that's why i said we have an affinity we definitely have an affinity for those kind of stories but not to oversimplify to go back to that white boy rick who who was you know it's not a pejorative term ladies and gentlemen the guy his nickname in in his crew or whatever was white boy rick who was white boy rick were she and i think it's one of the most egregious freaking over abuses of power i mean the kid was was not some you know el chapo drug lord but he wound up doing you know so many years when so many of his peers had been convicted incarcerated and released but i mean he just got out recently to give a little background on who white boy was or is rick Wershe. yeah so rick uh altogether he did 32 years straight he got got a couple years ago he had a life sentence as a juvenile and basically this dude he didn't go on the drug game you know of his own uh you know, violation, like his dad, they lived on the east side of Detroit. They lived there because his grandparents lived there. They refused to move. They didn't do the white flight thing. You know, they stayed there yeah. and the east side, you know, gradually became like, you know, hood in the cracker and in the eighties. Yes. And, and Rick's dad worked as an informant. Rick's dad used to go to gun shows and take Rick and, and his dad would buy guns. And then he would bring them back to the east side and he would sell them to like the local, you know, street corner thugs, gangsters and stuff on the street. And then he would double dip because then he would go to the FBI or local law enforcement and they would pay him for info and he would, you know, say, oh, I gave guns to these dudes. So that was that was Rick's dad's hustle. That was how he made his money. So Rick, you know, as, as a young kid, you know, kind of got indoctrinated into this, you know, like he, he didn't, I mean, it's his dad, his dad is doing it, you know, they, they put money on the table. So, you know, he was never like in the drug game per se, but, you know, he was a young white kid out here, 
you know, in the hood, yeah. you know, as a 14 year old and he was hanging out with all the kids, you know, and, and, you know, you know, when you're 13, 14, 15, 16, you might not be involved in stuff, but everybody's talking about who's got what you see the guys with the cars, you see the guys with the jewelry, you see the guys with the minks, you see the guys with the dime pieces and, you know, all the kids would talk about this. So he could be out running basketball, just hanging out with the kids in his neighborhood. And he knew everything. He knew who the big dudes were, who the drug dealers, who the killers were, because that's what kids talk about. Well, and talking about you know, talking so, about walking around with dime pieces, he even got more stripes when he started dating. I think it was Coleman Young's niece or something like that, the mayor of Detroit. Yeah, niece. yeah, yeah. He did. So that that was you know when Johnny Curry got locked up, that yeah. was Johnny Curry's girlfriend. You know, he was a big East Side drug lord, and 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 Rick kind of you know when when in his position. And it's crazy because Rick was working as an informant against Johnny the whole time, even while he was like kind of like a protege of Johnny or in that crew, you know, but yeah. it was the, the feds, the feds basically pimped Rick because, you know, when the crack era started jumping out and there was a bunch of murders and stuff like they, they were pumping Rick's dad and, and Rick's dad used to bring him to these, you know, informant meetings, you know, and, and they were pumping Rick's dad like, you know, who's this, who's this, how's all this going on? And Rick's dad didn't know. He wasn't in the street. You know, he just sold guns to these guys. Right. So he didn't really know any of this information. But Rick was out in the neighborhood. He was all like young kids, you know, like like I just said, playing ball, hanging out, doing whatever. So he could answer all these questions. And so what the feds did, they started filing all of Rick's information under his dad's federal informant number, which is like totally illegal. He was 14 years old. You know, that's like wow. the most illegal stuff, you know, and that's why, you know, then they had the big Johnny Curry case. And, you know, Johnny Curry, if they had the right witnesses, Johnny Curry probably would have got life. But when it came down to it, you know, they didn't want to they didn't want to, you know, divulge that their informant was like a 14, 15, 16 year old kid because, you know, they, they would have got shot down. That's illegal. So, you know, then they just let Johnny plead out and gave him a sweetheart deal because of that. You well, know, but that's all. That was, they were also weren't they paying paying Rick to like fake IDs to go to Vegas for like the, the Hearns fight and shit like that. I mean, it was just full on next level they were doing. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he, he, he was, he was going everywhere. He started doing his own thing. Cause you know, he was kind of there in the ashes of the Curry organization when they went down, you know, a lot of people knew that he was with Johnny Curry. So they started coming to him and he did, you know, have, have connections. So he started doing his own thing, but he did his own thing for, I mean, probably not even a year. And then eventually he got busted with eight, eight kilos or eight and a half kilos of coke. And he ended up getting a life sentence, you know, as a 17 year old for eight and a half kilos of coke. But really, you know, they were trying to bury him because he was inside the Curry organization and he knew that whole Mayor Coleman Young connection, you know, and, and like I say, he, like you said, he dated her, his niece. So. They were really trying to bury him because they knew he knew all this information. He was super connected. Who was it? Uh, who was the cat that was in Beverly Hills Cop? Gil, uh, uh, Gil Hill, I think his name was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, he so, had yeah. dirt on him too. So I it just I was wondering, like, man, why'd they bury this kid? Why'd they throw the book so hard at him? But as I started learning about how deeply inside he was, it was like, oh shit. I mean, he's lucky he didn't, you know, sui get suicided or something like that. I mean, he actually they let him live, but yeah, like you said, they buried him. Yeah, no, they, they definitely, they definitely buried him and, you know, they kept him buried until, you know, the stories started creeping out and, um, you know, with my writing and, and other people's writings and when we did the doc and then we put a spotlight and we found out, you know, there was this vendetta, you know, almost like how dare this, this white boy 
you know, tells law enforcement or, or government's business. So they, you know, they, they were basically punishing him, you know, for what he said and, and what he might've said, you know, so, you know, eventually, you know, he got out and he's out now and, um, you know, he's living life, you know, he, he's enjoying his infamy and his notoriety and, you know, still to this day, you know, people say, oh, he's a snitch, he's this, he's that. But I, I don't know. I, I always argue that because I'm like, dude was 14, the feds pimped him out. You know, a, a snitch is a person like if me and you get busted for a crime and then I get busted for another crime. I get at that crime by telling what me and you did and I yeah. testify against you and put you in prison. So a lot of people, they, they, they don't know what a snitch and a witness is. It, it's a different thing. I'm yeah. not going to call a 14-year-old kid getting pimped out by the feds a snitch. Well, and especially, I mean, if if he did, it didn't work for him because he wound up doing fucking, you know, three dimes, you know, 30 fucking yeah. many years. I mean, it didn't quite work for him. Have you ever had a chance to talk to him? No, I talk to him all the time. Oh, okay. Cool. So he's obviously approved of your work and. Yeah, I interviewed him. You know, we interviewed him. I was the reason we got him to do that doc. You know, I mean, without me, he wouldn't even do the doc. That's what's up. And like, again, my affinity for all, I mean, in, in the D, it's crazy. You got your best friends, your YBI, your young, young boys, and Chambers brothers, the Curry brothers. Like, he was deep in some, some gnarly shit up there. Cause the D, among other places, do not, they do not play up there. So it's a very, very fascinating story. So, so that was one of the ones you dropped. And again, this is, you could find this on Amazon. All these movies we're going to be talking about, you can find these, these on Amazon or they're online for your consumption. Um, like you said, we're going to get into the dope man last dope men. But the, the other one I just watched the other night was very interesting. Cause I know you had premiered it here in St. Louis, not too long ago called uh, nightlife. Basically the story of pastor Kenneth McCoy uh, from progressive AME Zion church. He started an organization called nightlife where he's boots on the ground, you know, just trying to help people that are out at night, drug addicted, et cetera, trying to just trying to do what he can to stave off, you know, the, the absolute plague that is going on here in St. Louis, whether it's crime and drugs, Chop it a little, about, a little bit how you got hooked up with Kenneth. The Reverend Kenneth McCoy probably is like around 2016, the same time I'm doing the white boy doc. You know, I'm working as a journalist for Vice. And, uh, you know, I, I was working for and I came right out. I got a job at these lawyers and I'm working for these lawyers. So I'm asking these lawyers, um, you know, Vice, Vice is, there's all these big sweeping gang indictments, like, you know, 2015, 2016. On, on the north side of St. Louis. And I knew when they had these big indictments, um, you know, because I was in the feds, I knew a lot of it, it was like a, a gentrification process. Because, you know, with the government and what big business and all these, you know, the elite people with money and these developers do, you know, they go into these areas and, and they basically, they, they, they take all, they get rid of all the young men. Yeah. Well, you they know, call so, it here so in St. Louis, and you mentioned it in the movie, it's called the Del Mar Divide, because this is an area where you got million-dollar homes on literally one side of the street, and then you got a decimated area literally on the other side of the street. Yeah. And it's the same houses, you know, just the ones on the other side of the street are, are not, you know, they haven't been upkept, you know, because there's there's no money. So so I, I was looking at this heroin indictment, this gentrification thing, and I was talking to this lawyer, and one of the lawyers that worked at the law firm I was at, Stoney Gershman, was this um, African-American, prominent African-American lawyer in uh, St. Louis named Daryl Piggy. And so I'm like, I told him what I'm trying to do, and he's like, look, I know somebody, that, uh, you know, he's on the streets, he got his ears to the streets, you know, he does all this stuff, um, he can probably hook you up. You know, because I was looking for some of the shot callers, gang leaders, anybody, you know, that, that I could talk to about these indictments and what they thought it meant. Mm. So I go down and, and I meet the Reverend Kim McCoy. And, um, you know, he does these walks. He has this organization called Nightlife. And they walk the streets from like 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, like in all the hot spots of the city in, in what they call North City or across Delmar. 
and like Lewis Place and all these other uh, you know neighborhoods which which keep St. Louis in the top five you know uh, murder capital of the world you know year after year after year. I find it um, interesting that he said that, dude, in that area where he walks. He said there's 150 churches in the neighborhood, and this area has the highest murder rate. I find that terribly ironic. Crazy. Yeah. Sorry, man. Yeah, it's just just crazy. I mean, it's all churches and liquor stores. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So so I go down, and I I meet him. And, you know, I'm I'm, I'm going after this, you know, because Vice assigned me this article. So, you know, I'm asking him, I'm asking him. And he's like, oh, yeah, I can introduce some people, but I'm walking with him. And as I'm walking with him, you know, they give me this yellow vest and I put this yellow vest. And, you know, it's it's it's, it's mostly ministers and preachers, but other people too, concerned citizens or whatever, you know, all different colors. And um, they all got these yellow vests on that say nightlife and we're walking. And I'm seeing how he interacts with these people. And, you know, like we're going to like down the drug hotspot streets like Auburn and you know, just like these things where it's all like, I mean, it just looks like a war-torn area. Like the houses look like they're yeah. bombed out and crazy. People coming, running out of the houses, like the squatters and drug addicts that come to him. And, and he got a smile on his face and these people are so happy. And so, you know, that night I kind of realized, uh, you know, this is a story. This is a story. So, um, you know, whatever that other story, you know, I was thinking about this is the story, this guy. So I wrote an article for Vice called uh the people who walk st louis's most dangerous streets and um you know it got a real good response and it kind of helped take his story national because after i did that you know he started he was in the usa today you know all these uh you know documentary news agencies from different countries were coming to film them and um i kind of helped start you know put the spotlight on him and, and start like this big you know media barrage and and as all this is happening you know i'm making white boy and um, I'm asking Sean Reck, I'm like, man, I want to do my own documentary. He's like, man, look for something local, you know, story. So, you know, because you don't have any funding. So you're going to have to get college kids to shoot, you know, that are just doing it for the passion of it. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have the money to fly people in and out. And you just need something local that you can do. And you can just go record and try to make a doc. Yeah. And so, you know, I saw what these other news agencies were doing, you know, on, on the story that I basically broke. And. I was like, man, here's my, it was right in front of my face the whole time. So, you know, then I I got some college kids, you know, we got some cameras and I I talked to Ken, you know, about the idea and and he was with it. And we, we started going out and we started recording them. We recorded them for like over a two year period, you know, not every weekend, but sometimes we'd go out like one, one, one or two weekends a month, you know, a couple days here, a couple days there. And we started recording. And then after two years, I had all this footage. And, um, you know, by then, White Boy was on Stars, And, um, you know, like, like I say, I, w- I was a writer and producer of, of, of something on a big streaming network. But, you know, I wanted to be like a studio head. I wanted to be a director. So, you know, I kind of had to uh, fashion myself into this. And, you know, with the continued mentorship of, of Sean Reck, you know, I started, you know, doing the interviews for this film, you know, putting all the footage together. And it was a long process, man. It was like three years of editing. I went, I went through a whole bunch of different editors, you know, because it was a lot of start, stop, you know, because I, yeah. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any money, you know, to hire somebody. I, I was working with all, you know, like college kids or amateurs or people that wanted to do something. But, you know, sometimes you find these people, they want to edit something, but then when they get into it and see how much work it is, they quit real quick. <laughs> yeah, so, a lot yeah, so it was, it was it was a situation like that. And finally, you know, I got an editor and, and he finished it and I was able to pay him a little bit of money. You know, I couldn't pay him anywhere, you know, what, what he deserved. But, you know, he accepted it because he hadn't done anything, you know, that big. He was just doing commercials and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, we got this film. And then I actually had the film. I probably actually had the film done, you know, 
almost like two years ago were pretty much done. But, um, you know, I, I had visions like I wanted to get into Sundance, you know, or a Tribeca or a Cannes. So, you know, I was entering into these big film festivals and, um, you know, I wasn't getting any play. I, I was getting rejected, rejected. And, um, you know, I, I just, I was like, okay, I, I got this thing. I, I want to keep making it better. You know, and this stuff, it's, it's like writing. You can keep building it forever and never put it out. Yeah. You know, so eventually, like a year ago, we kind of settled on a cut and, um, you know, with a couple of dudes that I was working with, Dave Bohr and Levi Barnes. But my other buddy, Corey Azraf, they were helping me do the editing and we, we finally finalized it and we put it in the St. Louis Film Festival. And um, yeah, and, and, and like I, I, I won awards. I won awards at the St. Louis Film Festival, the little one called the Filmmaker Showcase. And then I got invited to the big one in the fall. And uh, yeah, we won the Audience Choice Award. They call it the Leon Award. It's like basically like the, you know, the, the one of the top two awards you can, you know, win at this film festival, you know, this big international film festival with films from like 50 countries. Wow. And there was something... Yeah, there was something like 60 documentaries and I got I got audience choice award for best film for, you know, documentaries and for, you know, all the other films. So it, it was kind of crazy. I don't know. I was think I was up against like 100 and something films and that was like a complete surprise. But, you know, it, it, it was like, you know, in, in, in hindsight, you know, it, it was well deserved because we put a lot of effort you know, into that film, a lot of hours. And it's really, really beautiful film. And um, it's kind of like a call, call to action thing. And um, sure. yeah, you know, it really, you know, they need to see what the Reverend Kim McCoy does because his thing is like, he's a man on a mission to save his community. And also, you know, he says it all the time. He's like, you know, I meet them where they're at. Yeah. You know, so he goes out. Yeah. And, and he's just such a kind, compassionate, uh, caring dude. You know, to me, he was all, he seemed like a knight in shining armor. Yeah, you know this really big dude, roguish dude, has dreadlocks, and and he is, he has his own church. I mean, he is a real preacher, but you know a lot of the preachers stay in the church and say everything you can do, or they do events in the day. But this dude was actually going out in the middle of the night and risking his life and going to the people that really needed help. You yeah. know, giving out Narcan, bringing food, trying to get addicts, you know, into drug rehab, trying to get homeless people into shelters, you know, and um, yeah. So I just say it's real commendable. I mean, the dude deserves it. I mean, the dude. I, I made this film because. I wanted to, but also because, you know, the Reverend Kim McCoy, he deserves more resources for what he does. He, yeah, you know, more sure. people should, more people should model themselves after him. You know, if they had someone like him in all these, you know, inner center communities, you know, where there's poverty and drugs and, and prostitutions and gangs and, and violence, you know, because he makes a difference here. So, Without a doubt. you know, if you, yeah, if you have more people, you know, that's what, that's what I'm hoping. Like there's some copycats and, and people start doing what he's doing and, nightlife goes to all these other different cities well and it's one of those things man before i moved to st louis i lived in chicago for several years and i taught in an after school program in cabrini green i mean you talk about freaking gnarly streets i mean it's like but there's not a lot of money in that and that place had to get shut down and those kids who from 3 30 to 5 30 were actually in this place learning being fed and all this other stuff they're back on the streets man and you know they're since then I and mean, i left in 2005 there's been some casualties from there man and it's not and even, you know, Reverend, you know, Pastor, Pastor, Pastor McCoy, he's not, he's a knight in shining armor, but he's, he has chinks in his armor. He has his own blemishes in his background. And even watching the documentary, even his own child is dealing with some of the stuff that, you know, the streets are some of the pitfalls of the streets. So it's not like he's, you know, doesn't have his own uh, dog in the fight. Obviously that's his community, but like he, he's been affected personally. His son's been affected and, you know, it was really heartbreaking. <clears throat> a woman he knew uh, that was featured in the documentary a few times. Her name was Felicia. 
you kind of got to know her a little bit and her affinity for uh, Pastor McCoy. You know, she was saying, you know, as soon as I get my stuff together, I'm going to marry you and I'm going to marry you. And you find out, you know, Felicia's daughter died from an overdose. And then you find out, I mean, it's not a spoiler necessarily. I hope it's not, you know, Felicia wound up passing away during the making of this movie, which is just, you know, it's heartbreaking. There's so many casualties on these streets. And like you're saying, man, we need more resources for people. I mean, especially now with this fentanyl and everything else, like it's an, it's beyond an epidemic. But again, it seems like there's no money in the solutions. There's a ton of money in the drug game, but there's not a lot of money in the solutions. Yeah, and it's I, I was really amazed, like looking back, like after we made the film, like the the number of people that we recorded. I, I think we named about five of them, but there were probably more. You know, along with Felicia. I mean, it's it's just like a travesty. Like all these people. You know that the reverend was trying to help and, and he would see and he would kind of give them like the look you know because when the people saw him i was out there with them like they, it was like they would the spark of life they would see him and, and yeah. you would see the spark like they would smile and you because he treated them like people you know when when other people are like walking by spitting on them or or trying to tread them underfoot i mean these are people man so yeah. that's what i try to show in this film people are people man i don't care if you're a drug addict i don't care if you're white or black or where you're from or whatever people are people and if you treat them like people that act like people if you treat them like a drug addict if you stereotype yeah. them if you treat them like dirt you know that that's what life's about well and as we see in the in the in the documentary you know it is the streets of st louis and the block is definitely hot there were places that he he knew better not to take you guys with cameras and you know like you said you guys shot for two years how many instances or incidents did you have where shit got a little hairy and it could have gotten hairier? I mean, what kind of resistance did you guys get walking around for two years with a camera in these in these hot ass hot ass streets up here in St. Louis? Yeah, I mean, we got threatened. Uh, you know, they threatened to you know rob us. They threatened to take our smash our cameras. You know, they said get that camera away. You know, they threatened violence. I mean, we got threatened a lot. You know, but I mean, the Rev is 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 such a, a big presence. You know, he could he could immediately calm that type of stuff, you know, and um, you know, so it was. I, I was I wouldn't say you know I was always cautious, but with the rev, I was never scared with the rev. I mean, right. Even the rev will say like sometimes you know he was scared or, but I, I don't know the dude. He just exudes such you know confidence and and he's just so personable and he's just so loving. You know, with, with the people out there that you know even the gangbangers or whatever like that's what he does. Like he's. He's like a fireman, you know. He like runs. Most people run away from the fire. He, he, he runs, runs into it. The fire. He runs through the fire and he puts it out. I mean, just real commendable human being, man. I mean, if we have more human beings like that, you know, the world would be a much better place. Well, and like I said, obviously the streets are very dangerous here, and it just made me think of something. You know, even though he is a fixture to that community, I forget the officer's name, and I feel bad. It's a, a black gentleman who's an officer. And Ferguson got, you know, when shit was going down or up north there, he wound up getting shot trying to protect a building. But he, too, was a fixture of the community, but he wound up losing his life, you know, at the hands of, you know, some person who didn't revere him as well as he should have been revered. So that's why I was just, like, wondering. I knew you guys got some clapback, but, I mean, and obviously the, reverend, the pastor is still here. I just didn't know with you guys walking around with cameras how, how close they got. But, you know, it's... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we heard gunshots. I mean, nobody came, like, right up on us with guns. That never happened. But, you know, we, like, certain areas, we'd go, and they, they'd be firing guns to let us know, you know, like, basically get out of here. Yeah. You know, they'd be firing it, you know, into buildings or up in the air. So, you know, we did hear a lot of gunshots, and, and we were threatened, especially, like, we were on the, uh, you know, the, the tracks, you know, in, in some of those areas. Like, you know, like, they, they would tell us, you know, like, turn that camera off, get it out of here. You know, I'm going to break that camera. I'm going to bust your face. 
you know, so, um, yeah, we, we were threatened a lot. But like I said, in the Reds' presence, I felt okay. And I think in a lot of ways, I, I have the same kind of view as a Red, you know, especially from doing prison where, you know, people are people, man. And if you meet them where they're at and, and you treat them with respect, you know, you can dialogue with them. You know, For maybe sure. they won't agree with you. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, you know, like I said, I would go up and talk to the dudes like right, right with the, right with the Rev. So, you know, but but definitely I, I, without him, I wouldn't have gone out there with camera. Yeah. We were walking around. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're walking around with sometimes like twenty, thirty thousand dollars worth of camera equipment. Yeah, you need that stamp of approval. And it was, you know, yeah. it's, again, it's a testament to his, you know, loyalty to his community. But you know, you saw in the in the documentary, like he'd run into people, like, "No, Rev, I'm, I'll come to church with you tomorrow. I'll come to church with you next Sunday." And he would go out to these people's homes and try to get them. Like you said, you were going to come to church, and you know, a lot of times they were sleeping or just didn't make it. But I mean, he he did the follow up, man. He didn't just say, "Hey, I'll see you at church." He's like, "No, I'll give you a ride. I'll come to your house yeah. and I'll take you there." So that was it's a beautiful movie, ladies and gentlemen. Check it out. It is called Nightlife. Again, this can be found on Amazon and your latest one you dropped I just I've watched it I think twice now maybe three times since I've talked to you about coming on it is called Dope Men and these are the basically there's a longer subtitle that what is it the original gang what is Dope Men America's uh, America's first drug cartel there we go there we go and you know if you follow not just this show but the other show I do the conspiracy farm I say all the time with some t-shirts out hashtag IAOC it's all organized crime and we like to think of organized crime as you know, Capone, the five families, Genovese, Gambino, Lucchese, Bonanno, uh, missing one, Colombo. But I mean, in my opinion, yes, that's they will battle over the blocks, which is the street. But in my opinion, the block for these real nefarious assholes is the globe. And as we see all over the world, whether it's drugs, guns, arms, people's bodies, people's body parts, it's all organized crime. But what you get into is the, the kind of the original stuff. We've all heard of Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, et cetera. I mean, I've been deep in this game for a minute, man. I've never heard of Arnold Rothstein. Talk to me how you got this one started and who are the players involved in Dope Men. Yeah, so, you know, as as I see it, you know, the, the mafia or organized crime, you know, at one time, you know, everybody calls the mafia now and they know, like, look, Luciano, the commission, you know, you got to be Italian. Yeah. Right? But before that, you know, it, it was a conglomerate, you know, it was like, you know, especially in New York. I mean, they had, like, Irish gangsters, you know, they had Jewish gangsters, yeah. and they had Italian gangsters. And during Prohibition, even, you know, before Prohibition, one of the biggest gangsters in New York City was this guy named Arnold Rothstein. So Arnold Rothstein's claim to fame is he's the one, he fixed the 1919 World Series, yeah, you know, yeah. like the Black, the Black Sox scandal. That yes. was him. That's like his claim to fame. That's what he's known for. But, you know, Really, I mean, he was a big gambler, ran off the gambling, gambling stuff, and um, but really, I mean, this this dude, this dude was like like, like a gentleman gangster. He was like the uh, the con the conduit between you know like the legitimate business and like the street corner dudes. And until prohibition, a lot of the gangsters, they, that's all they were. They were just street corner thugs, right? You know, pro prohibition and guys like Arnold Rothstein, you know, showed these guys how to make a shitload of money, and and, and the mob through prohibition they made so much money they, they basically went from street corner dudes like a mom and pop store to to a corporation yes you know and, and arnold rostin was one of the, the major influences he basically took dudes like lucky luciano um jack lake's diamond you know fatty fatty uh walsh you know dutch schultz you know and, and these guys and, and he showed them how to be gentlemen so like this whole 
mafia mythology and, and, and ethos, you know, about this gentleman gangster. I mean, this came from Arnold Rothstein. He taught him how to wear suits. You know, he taught him, you know, how to be polite. He taught him how to, you know, move in polite society. And so that's uh, one of your guys, comes down. one of your contributors, Scott Bernstein, that's kind of what he said about when The Godfather came out. It was that, like you said, that mythos and that ethos of, you know, the, the Corleones, there were these gentlemen. It wasn't, you know, granted, they got into some gangster shit, but on the surface, they kept that air of, you know, gentlemanly. Legitimacy, legitimacy. Yes, yes without a doubt. That's, that's what it's about, you know. I mean, that's what, you know, our government and all these corporations well, and it's, do. It's, it's under the air it's, of legitimacy. It, it's funny you bring that up, and I don't mean to digress too far, but of course, that Godfather 1 and 2 were one of my favorite movies. And in Godfather 2, of course, Michael Corleone starts meeting with, I think it was the, a senator from Nevada, and the senator from Nevada is like, yeah, go fuck yourself. You guys are all greasy, Italian, whatever, whatever. But when that, that senator gets caught with a hooker and he needs Michael's favor, then, you know, he calls on them to, to you know, complete that favor. But... That's when they, not just in the movie, but I think that's kind of what these Arnold Rothsteins kind of symbolized of going legitimate. And as much as people talk shit about Godfather 3, which isn't the best movie, but the subject of it is the Corleones had gone so legitimate. They're setting up a banking or a business banking deal with the freaking Vatican Bank. And that just lets yeah. you know how how legitimate this shit wound up becoming going from just street level stuff to state sanctioned and facilitated organized crime. Yeah, because even even you go back to, to politics in, in the early 20th century, I mean, you know, like when they broke the strikes or, you know, did this with all the corporation stuff, I mean, they always needed the muscle. So, yeah. I mean, the muscle has always been a part of it. But, you know, that the mafia guys, the original monsters, they evolved from that muscle into calling the shots. And, and if you look at it, like by the 50s and 60s, the, the mafia was as, as powerful as the U.S. government. You know, that's why basically by, you know, and then it took another... 20 years, 25 years for the government to decimate that mafia. And I'd say by the 80s, you know, they, they, they lost a lot of the power that they had once had. But Arnold Rothstein was was the visionary, you know. And, you know, eventually, you know, he got killed, like, over, you know, a, a gambling debt. You know, he got shot in the stomach. So it wasn't even like a hit. It was just an argument, yeah. you know. Uh, and 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 when he, when he died, it was guys like Lucky Luciano, who he kind of mentored, who Rothstein mentored, like he went into, uh, you know, the offices and, and he got like the Rolodex, like all the contacts, you know, political contacts, you know, law enforcement contacts. And I think what Dopeman kind of shows, it shows how, um, it doesn't show directly, but you know, like, like if you look at it and you look at the layers, there's just so many layers to this stuff. Yeah. It kind of shows like by the time prohibition ended, Right. So the, the, the lucky Luciano and, and all them, they already had their next money in place, just like big business, you know, just like big business, because like the Rockefellers made all this money, like, uh, you know, on industry. So when the industry crashed, like the robber barons and they had all the muckrakers and stuff, you know, because of the human exploited child labor laws, all that got developed. They went into the pharmaceutical and the plastic corporation. So the mob was do, doing just like big business. Yeah. They were like, oh, we're going to lose all this money for prohibition. What's next? 